The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to I Took the High Road with Jacob Jansen. Our program is designed to educate about the drug problems that are reaching epidemic proportions in the United States. Could we be approaching the drug problem the wrong way? Mr. Jansen has been down the road of addiction, down the path of recovery, and now helps others find their path. Addicts are not bad people trying to get good. They are sick people needing to get well. Are you a part of the solution or the problem? Come and join us for an hour of fantastic guests, amazing stories, positive encouragement, and information that just might make your community a better place. Now, here's your host, Jacob Jensen. Hello, welcome to I Took the High Road. I am your host, Jacob Jansen, and I think we have a really great show today. Uh, today's show is inpatient treatment facilities, uh, what an inpatient treatment facility is and isn't. And we have a really special guest with us today. Her name is Betsy Farber-Smith, and she's the Executive Director of Treatment Services at the Betty Ford Center. Uh, so why I wanted to do this show today is because there's such a misconception about what actually happens at an inpatient treatment facility. There's so much cloud around it and uh, so much fear of a lot of individuals that I work with about actually getting them into a treatment facility. So, you know, I wanted to first look at a few statistics um, about, you know, who's actually getting help for this disease. So I went to the SAMHSA website and according to Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, uh, which is SAMHSA, their National Survey on Drug Use and Health uh, said there are 23.5 million people ages 12 years and older that need treatment for an illicit drug or alcohol abuse problem in 2009. Of these individuals, only 2.6 million, which is only 11.2%, uh, receive that treatment at a specialty facility. Now, certainly when I went into my treatment stint, uh, there was a lot of fear about going into there, a lot of worry. You know, I, I thought that this was going to be punishment and not help and, you know, I was going to be told I was a bad person or that shock therapy or, you know, those traditional ideas of what inpatient used to be. And, and it really wasn't true. I got to that facility, uh, you know, that saved my life and there was a lot of laughter in the halls. There was a lot of people having fun. People actually cared about you. Uh, so things really, really changed and, you know, I didn't want to go at first, but at the end of my 30-day stay, I, I really didn't want to leave. So, and, and it was something that really helped me change my view uh, of, uh, of life and, and helped me stay clean to this day. So uh, treatment facilities uh, saved my life. Uh, so I want to get right into the show. Uh, Betsy, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me, Jake. 
No problem. So, you know, the first question that I want to ask you is, uh, this is such a challenging field to be in. As an interventionist and a recovery coach, I deal with the challenges each day. Uh, can you please, you know, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, the Betty Ford Center, and, you know, why you entered this field and came to be the Executive Director of Treatment Services at the Betty Ford Center? I'd be happy to. And I loved your introduction, Jake. Um, it was it was spot on. So many people um, have a misperception about inpatient treatment or any kind of treatment for that matter. And um, the fear and the misperceptions that are out there are rampant. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to hopefully, you know, clarify a little bit of what actually does go on at the inpatient level of care. Um, I've always been interested in the field of psychology. I graduated from uh, University of Southern California with my BA in psychology and went about my life and um, raised a family. And lo and behold, in 1996, I found myself a patient at the Betty Ford Center. And uh, after hearing Mrs. Ford's lecture and um, learning all she had done for women who struggle with the disease of addiction, I decided to devote my life to helping other addicts and alcoholics. Uh, after I'd been sober for a little while, I went to the Hazelden Graduate School of Addiction Studies and got my master's in addiction counseling. And I've been working at the Betty Ford Center ever since for the past 13 years. Um, I've worked on the front lines as a primary counselor. Uh, I spent eight years working in the foundation for the benefit of patients who couldn't afford treatment, which is also one of the barriers people experience. And for the past year, I've been in my current position of executive director of, of treatment services here. And it's, you know, it is a very challenging field, but it's, I think more than challenging, it's rewarding. We see miracles happen with people every day. One of the things we focus on at the Betty Ford Center is not only inpatient treatment, but the continuum of care. Uh, the inpatient treatment, as you said, is generally a 28 to 30 day stay. I need to stress that our treatment protocol here is very individualized and uh, we move people through the levels of care depending on their own individual situations, um, length of use, um, amount of use, drug of choice, family situation. Um, we use the ASAM criteria to determine level of care. Um, after inpatient treatment, which is we have 80 beds, um, we are gender-specific. We have four halls, two are women and two are men, and then we have our detox medical unit. And um, it is gender-specific for several reasons. First of all, when the Betty Ford Center started 32 years ago, Mrs. Ford was very concerned about treatment for women and addressing their special needs. And it wasn't until just before the doors opened, actually, that we decided that we would have men uh, come as patients as well, and it's worked out. It's worked out well for us. Um, but we still do have a specialty track for women addressing trauma issues and uh, women in relationships, and men have their special needs as well. You know, a day in the life of inpatient care at the Betty Ford Center. We wake you up at six o'clock. Patients are very busy. Uh, but you're right, there is a lot of laughter. I remember the first time I heard myself laugh sober. It was almost like it was coming from someone else. 
is, isn't it an amazing feeling? I, I remember that laughing and getting that wave of euphoria, that pink cloud sometimes, as they, they call it, from feeling normal and having that endorphin rush again from laughter. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. You know, we, you know uh, to back up a little bit, you know, I, I called this a challenging field, and you said it's rewarding. And one of the things that I always say, um, you know, is you can be a part of the successes, but not the failures. And that's certainly helped me, uh, you know, uh, put healthy boundaries um, up for when I'm helping people. Uh, you oh, know, yes. It, it, during that open, uh, we mentioned that you know, I mentioned that there's only 11.2 percent of the the population that's not getting help right now, and and one of the things that you keyed on to was uh, the affordability of it or the payment. What what are some of the other barriers right now or reasons that people aren't getting the help they need? Well, I think, and this was true for me as well. We've come a long way in terms of the stigma attached to of the disease of addiction, but it's still out there. Um, A lot of people are afraid to admit that they have a problem uh, because of the stigma that exists. I think it's lack of education. I think it's lack of knowledge about resources that are available. There's treatment available for all levels of, of, of addiction and socioeconomic and demographics. I'm just here in the Coachella Valley. We have numerous uh, treatment centers that address uh, different, different demographics, if you will. And I think that's a large, a large part of it is the stigma that's attached to the disease still. And oh, absolutely. People don't want to commit to, you know, going away for 30 days. We hear that a lot in the admissions office yeah. that, you know, I can't, I can't afford to be gone. I thought that as well. I yep. thought I was so important in my children's life that I couldn't be gone. And as it turned out, I was impacting their lives in such a negative way that it was the best thing I could have done for them. And, you know, and, and I experienced the exact same thing in my recovery. And also when I do interventions with a lot of people, you know, I continuously hear 30 days, I can't leave for that long. So in that intervention process, it's really about helping that person take care of their life while they're gone. And the interesting thing is, is, is when I talk to them, they go, I can't leave. I have so much to do. But you let them go for four weeks. They come back and that two weeks that they're back, uh, they've gotten more done than they have in the last six months. Uh, you know, so there's really this denial and this uh, pushing things off and, until you really get the help you need. And, you know, and, and I realized and in, in was taught in treatment and re- in recovery also that you have to put recovery first or, or everything's going to fall apart. And that certainly was true in my life. That's true in my life as well. Um, and I think a lot of people don't realize, you know, there are different steps into recovery, and it's not like you call the Betty Ford Center because you think you have a problem, and boom, the next thing you know, you're in treatment. There are different ways to assess a patient and see what level of treatment is needed. You know, many of our patients are appropriate for our outpatient program, for example, which is an eight-week evening program, so they can get on with their daily lives during the day and then come in for treatment in the evening. Sure. Uh, you just talked about, you know, that in-take process and, and some of the assessments uh, that you do. Can, can you walk uh, the listeners through that process? Or if somebody called the Betty Ford Center and said, you know, I think that I have a problem, what is the process that the Betty Ford Center goes through to get somebody admitted? Oh, well, I'm glad you asked that, Jake. We have a slew uh, of 
call center full of addiction of uh, admissions counselors, and the, all that the person needs to do is is call in our eight hundred number, and uh, which is eight hundred eight five four nine two one one, and just say all you have to do is say one thing. I think I may have a problem with alcohol or other drugs, and our admissions counselors will lead the caller down the path of assessment, and it's a very uh, soft, warm, compassionate conversation, uh, not blaming, not shaming, full of education. We address all different areas of the addiction and the person, um, get information, and then we make the assessment and refer the patient uh, to uh, the, lo- the appropriate level of care. Sure. No, and, you know, when I, when I deal uh, with clients, I'll have individuals call me, you know, and what I tell them is y- you need to call and, and ask for help. That being a human on this planet is very, very difficult. Being a human with a mental health disorder is even more difficult. And to think we could take this on alone, um, you know, is, is insane. Uh, you know, if, if we were to get cancer or something like that, we certainly wouldn't take on this problem by ourselves. So it's really about, you know, kind of breaking that silence and asking for help. Um, Picking up that 900-pound phone, absolutely. And it's the best thing you can do for yourself and your loved ones. And the truth of the matter is you may not have a problem, um, but I think the fact that if we think we do, then we need to look into it and see if maybe we do need, need some help, absolutely. Sure. Before I get into you know what the Betty Ford Center actually does, you know the, the Betty Ford Center opened in 1982. Uh, how has inpatient uh, treatment really changed over the last 30 years? You know, uh, from that that very negative view of treatment to what are we doing now to to try and change that? And what are we seeing happening in the facilities? Well, I think. I think when I was here in 1996, it was very different than it is today in a lot of ways. In a lot of ways, it's very similar. And we've sort of vetted the process. Um, You know, 33 years ago, Mrs. Ford went to Hazelden in Minnesota and said, teach us how you do this Minnesota model of treatment. And to this day, we're still true to that model, although there are some variations. I think one of the main things is that there's a lot of education involved in our treatment here. We have lectures, we have groups, we have physicians who are working with patients to educate them about the disease and about their particular case. The other thing that I think has really changed here is we have an emphasis on families and children. We have a five-day family program which focuses on loved ones, significant others, spouses, siblings um, of the patient. And during the course of that week, they are educated about the disease and how they are involved in the, in the disease. And they're sick um, like the patient is sick because of enabling or trying to control it. Um, and we have a program for children ages 7 to 12 whose lives have been affected by, by loved ones who are, who are addicted to alcohol or other drugs. And uh, I think the emphasis on the family is a, is a big change that's happened over the course of, uh, of the last 20 years. 
Sure. Well, you know, one of the things that your families are very surprised about when they call me to do an intervention, uh, they don't realize how much time I actually spend with the family educating them about this disease. You know, I usually spend between seven and eight hours or so prior to the intervention uh, for that intervention process, which usually only takes about 40 minutes to an hour. So it's really about helping educate the family and, uh, you know, I think you're correct exactly to say that, you know, that the family system is getting more involved. Uh, treatment facilities are starting to recognize that this is a family disease. And while there may be only one individual with a substance problem, uh, abuse problem, there are other individuals in the family uh, that can contribute to that bad behavior through, you know, enabling or the codependency um, issues that they have. So... <clears throat> Uh, right, and the family members don't realize it. They think they're acting out of love and trying, just trying to help the person, but what they realize is most of the time they need to let go and um, allow the, the disease to take its course and hope that the bottom isn't, isn't too low and that the patient reaches out for help. The, yeah, ab- the absolutely, and, and I think that's you know, one of the other things right now in this country that, you know, is really stopping people from getting help is that as parents, uh, there's this feeling of failure and inad- or inadequacy as a parent because their son or daughter um, is addicted to a certain substance and admitting that their son or daughter has a problem is uh, they feel like a failure as a parent when in actuality it couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, so it's really about helping the family understand that this wasn't their fault, you know, that that this happened up to this point, that it wasn't their decision that to happen and doesn't reflect bad on their parenting style. What does reflect on their parenting style is what they're going to do about it from this point forward now that they know there's an issue. Uh, so we got to take a quick break here. Uh, f- so we're going to take a quick break uh, from our commercial sponsors. And when we get back, we're going to continue talking to Betsy Farver-Smith from the Betty Ford Center. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Hi, my name is Jacob Jansen, and I am the owner of My Recovery Project. Do you know someone using drugs or alcohol? Are their actions negatively affecting you or people you care about? If so, it is time for an intervention. Far too often, we are a country that acts after problems arise. It is time to act now. Interventions confront a person and allow them to see their self-destructive behavior and how it affects themselves, family, and friends. Just as important, interventions help the family understand the disease of addiction and make sure the loved one gets the help they need by offering a solution of treatment. I have been through the hell of addiction, and I have found a passion in recovery helping others. Getting a person into treatment can be a difficult task. I help the family through this providing options, and I become a mediator during the intervention. If you would like more information, please visit www.myrecoveryproject.com or call 262-290-1072 for a free consultation before things get worse. My name is Linda Lenz. Last year, my husband and I received a phone call that no parent should ever receive. We received a call that our 23-year-old son had died of a heroin overdose. We were on a mission to find out how this could happen. He was a beautiful person, intelligent, a straight-A student, and a wonderful son. But here's what we did not know. 
the drug landscape had changed. Kids in junior high and high school were using prescription pills to get high. Prescription pills are opiates, just like heroin, and they can be found in almost every home's medicine cabinet. To combat this problem, we established a Facebook page, Stop Heroin WI, and a website, StopHeroinNow.org. Please go to this website and donate generously. All of your money goes directly to prevention programs and rehabilitation programs. StopHeroinNow.org. So no parent ever has to receive that phone call. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to I Took the High Road with host Jacob Jansen. To reach our show today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. Or send us an email at jacobjansen at itookthehighroad.com. Now, back to the show. Hello and welcome back. This is I Took the High Road and I am your host, Jacob Jansen. Uh, today's show is inpatient treatment facilities, what an inpatient treatment facility is and isn't. And uh, we're joined here today with Betsy Farver-Smith, who is the Executive Director of Treatment Services from the Betty Ford Center. So uh, welcome back again. Uh, so, uh, Betsy, what, what are some of the current trends, uh, you know, that you're seeing at the Betty Ford Center as, as far as clients and substance use right now? Well, I think it, not only at the center, but I think across, across the spectrum, one of the things, one of the changes, two main changes, one of them is um, when I was in treatment, it was mostly alcoholics, and um, now we're seeing polysubstance abuse. People are coming into treatment addicted to uh, numerous substances. Uh, we're seeing a lot of opioid addiction for chronic pain, people who are in chronic pain and get, get addicted to their, their drug that treats their pain. Uh, the other change that we're seeing is the demographics as far as age is concerned. Again, when I was here, it was mostly 35 to 55-year-old adults. We're seeing a lot more younger adults, ages 18 to 26, and we're seeing more older adults, the baby boomers, um, who have their own set of issues as they come into treatment, um, being prescribed various prescriptions as they get older, one doctor not knowing what the other one is doing. Um, So we're seeing a lot of older adults as well. Sure, you know, and and you talked about uh, the opiate uses that that is, is definitely going up, and I've certainly uh, seen that too. You know, not only in myself, but but in this area of the country, um, you know, and prescriptions. Uh, you you talked about the opiates and being pain dependent on these things, and you know, uh, there's statistics that have come out that I've read that said opiate prescriptions in the last ten years have gone up three hundred percent. You know, and when I hear statistics like that, you know, kind of makes me wonder, is our population three times sicker, you know, getting hurt three times more often, um, you know, and really that wasn't the case. Uh, it, tons of pharmaceuticals were getting dumped out onto the street, and that's what really left, led to our, our heroin problem right now, certainly in the Midwest and across the country. Yeah. Uh, I... Sorry, go ahead. 
Well, I was just going to say we have a specific pain management program for people who have chronic pain. Their initial diagnosis must be chemical dependency, but of course a lot of that is because of the the painkillers that they're addicted to. And it's a 45-day program, and it's a specialty uh, track for chronic pain management. And I have seen miracles come out of that of that room, people who go in in wheelchairs, the end of the 45 days, they're pain-free, they're walking. It's all about pain management through the the brain chemistry, mindfulness, Qigong, uh, getting in touch with the cause of that pain, the root cause. Uh, It's really an incredible program. And, and, you know, and I want my listeners to be clear that I'm, you know, I certainly understand that there are individuals out there that need to be on this pain medication. What I'm saying is I just feel like it's being overprescribed right now uh, by way too many doctors. Um, and, and people need to start stepping off of this. One of the shows that I'm going to be doing in two or three weeks here is um, individuals who have had very traumatic accidents, amputations, car accidents, who are on very high doses of painkillers and how they manage manage to get off them and and live a substance-free life now. So, you know, I know it can be done, but it is a lot of work to do it. It is a lot of work. Sure. Um, You know, you mentioned that uh, you had this special pain program, and you know, and I know that that's one of the issues that some of my clients face is that they have extreme pain and they feel like they have to be on these opiates in order to take care of it. That's kind of one way that you know the Betty Ford Center individualizes their program. Uh, what are some of the other ways that you do that? You said it isn't a cookie cutter program. You really tailor it to each individual. Absolutely, we do. We have a professional's treatment program for people who are in uh, health-sensitive professions, doctors, nurses, anesthesiologists, uh, dentists as well. Uh, And also, one of the myths about the Betty Ford Center is that we're for people of means and prominence, and that couldn't be farther from the truth. But we do have our share of professionals and CEOs and Um, people in the entertainment industry, and we have a special program for those people so that they can um, sort of relate to other patients as well as relate to other people in their own profession. They have their own set of lectures and groups and um, book studies and whatnot throughout the course of treatment. And we recommend a longer length of stay for our professionals, usually a 60 to 90 day stay, a step down to our residential day treatment level of care, which is sober living with day treatment, not on campus, it's off campus in houses. We also have a a young adult program for young adults ages 18 to 26, and that is uh, specialized, again, for the needs of young adults. There's more focus on peer pressure, living skills, sober fun. We take our young adults ziplining to the beach Uh, Sea kayaking, Uh, we take them to the local homeless shelter to serve food to the homeless. Uh, That's a very specialty track as well that we have here. And our young people do very well. And you mentioned earlier about the parents. That's one of the most frequent calls we get in our call center is from a concerned parent. And we help them walk through getting their young person here into treatment. No, you know, absolutely. And I, you said you do all of those uh, things outside of treatment. I remember that, you know, f- teaching people how to have fun in early recovery is so important. You have to really find that, that better life for, for yourself. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so, 
when I went uh, through treatment, uh, you know, there was two different models or a few different models that are out there, you know, and you mentioned the, the Minnesota model, the recovery management model, there's a harm reduction model. Uh, can you please explain, you know, what is the Minnesota model of recovery and, and why the, the Betty Ford Center uses it? Well, our, our model of treatment is abstinence-based, uh, 12-step focused. It is a multidisciplinary treatment. Um, we view this as a biopsychosocial disease. We address all aspects of the person, the physical, the mental, the spiritual. Uh, one of the things that's happening, changes that you had asked about here, is that we're more focused on wellness, mindfulness, uh, we have acupuncture, biofeedback, yoga, uh, fitness. Uh, it's all about, you know, the entire person and, and because recovery is about the whole, the whole being, not just the mental or the physical or one or the other. Uh, we have, as far as the Minnesota model of treatment is concerned, we have during the course of the day, we have um, focus groups, process groups, um, CBT therapy, as you talked about, cognitive behavioral therapy, psychotherapy that we address. We address uh, trauma in specialty groups. We address codependency. We address relapse. It's, um, it's, a, it's a very dynamic, robust program, um, but it is abstinence and 12-step based. That's, uh, that's primarily what it is. No, and, and it's neat to hear that it, there, there's a wide range of things for people to try um, in their recovery because, you know, I certainly realize that everyone's recovery is different. Everybody starts for different reasons. Everybody quits for different reasons. And everybody finds different things uh, in their recovery to help them through it and, and find that support. Uh, but what I always do is just encourage people in early recovery to go out and try something new because uh, you just might find that you really enjoy it. It might be something that becomes a big part of your recovery. Um, mm -hmm. gar gardening was uh, one of those things for me that, you know, I kind of thought that uh, I would never be doing this, you know, a hardcore heroin addict, uh, you know, hedge fund manager. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, now I find myself gardening outside and I absolutely love growing fruits and vegetables. So, uh, but, you know, I, I would have never found that I enjoyed doing that unless I would have tried that and put some time into it. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you mentioned uh, the cognitive behavioral therapy and psychotherapy. I remember those were you know, two things that, uh, that, that I did during my treatment stay and that idea of trying to erase those good euphoric memories and replace them with uh, those bad uh, thoughts and of ideas of how it destroyed your life. Could, could you explain to our listeners maybe a little bit more about what cognitive behavioral therapy is and the purpose of it and you know, also psychotherapy and the purpose of that? Yes, absolutely. And you touched on that beautifully just now, Jake. Um, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is commonly referred to as CBT, is a form of treatment that focuses on examining the relationships uh, that we have between our thoughts, our feelings, and our behaviors. And we explore these patterns of thinking that lead to self-destructive actions and beliefs that direct these thoughts. Um, people with mental illness can modify their patterns of thinking to improve coping. And, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of scary to include substance abuse in mental illness, but there's a, there's a huge correlation there. 
between thinking and, and behavior um, that relates to both mental health and substance abuse. Um, CBT is a type of psychotherapy that's different from traditional psychodynamic psychotherapy in that the therapist and the patient actively work together to help the patient recover. And that's one of the things that we do in our small group processes is the therapist and the patient are a team and they work together to examine these thoughts and feelings that lead to these self-destructive behaviors. And on the other hand, psychotherapy, it's an approach to psychology that emphasizes the um, systematic study of the psychological forces that underlie human behavior, feelings and emotions, and how they might relate to early experience. So that's, we do some of that here as well, for example, in our trauma groups. What is it that happened in your past that leads you to have this belief in these behaviors today and examining those past experiences to change current behavior and thoughts? Sure. So, if, if I... Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, you know, you touched on the disease model of this, and there's, you know, still a lot of skeptics that this actually is a disease. And, you know, going through opiate addiction and understanding the the pull of those opiates and the heroin, um, you know, and how it changed my brain chemistry and my thought patterns. And, you know, I couldn't get out of bed if I didn't have this. Could you speak to our our listeners a little bit more about uh, that idea of uh, the disease? disease model and and that this is a mental health disorder and a disease, what classifies it as that? Well, it's chronic, it's progressive, and it's fatal, for one thing. Um, People don't realize uh, the extent that this disease, this disease, you know, as we hear uh, so frequently, is is a fatal disease if we don't arrest its development. And I think that um, in terms of, of mental health, you're talking about, you know, not being able to get out of bed in the morning without having your drug. And, of course, there are alcoholics that talk about not being able to get out of bed in the morning without sure, the shaking. a drink yeah. of the alcohol, right, just to be able to function. And I think we get, we get to that level. Um, when I first came into treatment, I was highly offended that someone would think that I had a mental illness. Um, but it was explained, you know, it's a brain function. It's about neurotransmitters in the brain and the way we respond and react to what these different drugs do for us and to us. And it's about, you know, it's my personal conviction that, and a lot of people share this belief that I've talked to, that a lot of us start drinking and using self-medicating some form of discomfort mental discomfort, physical discomfort, and then cross the line into addiction. So when we get sober, we need to back up and take a look at what that issue was and deal with it in order to move forward into recovery. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and I've read statistics that say, you know, that the substance use is a condition or, or, or a symptom of an underlying condition, actually. Uh, that, <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, it's a symptom of an underlying condition that, you know, four out of five times somebody also has some other underlying condition that needs to be addressed, some reason why they're using, whether it's either anxiety or depression or stress or grief, uh, but they're usually using to to uh, kind of quench that or... or uh, self-medicate. S- self-medicate, absolutely. 
Um, you know, and it, and it comes to that point certainly where, uh, you know, the first one for me was a choice. After that, it wasn't. And I really talk about the three things uh, that led me to make that choice um, and get hooked on this substance: the the brain physiology or biology of the body, the lack of information or misinformation, and then my uh, risk taking behavior. And uh, those three things led me to take that substance, which hooked up in my brain and uh, slowly pulled me down, uh, you know, a very bad path. And when we talk about addiction, uh, it's really that that uh, negative behavior that we see as so much more pleasurable from that rush of endorphins that keeps us doing those negative things, you know, that, that insanity of using uh, that we use. Um, we, you know, life continues to get worse, but yet we continue to use because we can't see any other way out of that. Um, you know, and that's really the mental illness of this. That's the disease. Uh, no one says they want to grow up and become a heroin addict. You know, uh, most individuals that I perform interventions on want help, want treatment, and want to get out of this cycle. So we got to take a quick commercial break here. Uh, and when we get back, we'll continue talking with Betsy Farver-Smith, the Executive Director of Treatment Services from the Betty Ford Center. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. My name is Linda Lenz. Last year, my husband and I received a phone call that no parent should ever receive. We received a call that our 23 year old son had died of a heroin overdose. We were on a mission to find out how this could happen. He was a beautiful person, intelligent, a straight A student, and a wonderful son. But here's what we did not know. The drug landscape had changed. Kids in junior high and high school were using prescription pills to get high. Prescription pills are opiates, just like heroin, and they can be found in almost every home's medicine cabinet. To combat this problem, we established a Facebook page, Stop Heroin WI, and a website, StopHeroinNow.org. Please go to this website and donate generously. All of your money goes directly to prevention programs and rehabilitation programs. StopHeroinNow.org So no parent ever has to receive that phone call. Hi, my name is Jacob Jansen, and I am the owner of My Recovery Project. Do you know someone using drugs or alcohol? Are their actions negatively affecting you or people you care about? If so, it is time for an intervention. Far too often, we are a country that acts after problems arise. It is time to act now. Interventions confront a person and allow them to see their self-destructive behavior and how it affects themselves, family, and friends. Just as important, interventions help the family understand the disease of addiction and make sure the loved one gets the help they need by offering a solution of treatment. I have been through the hell of addiction, and I have found a passion in recovery helping others. Getting a person into treatment can be a difficult task. I help the family through this, providing options, and I become a mediator during the intervention. If you would like more information, please visit www.myrecoveryproject.com or call 262-290-1072 for a free consultation before things get worse. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
You are listening to I Took the High Road with host Jacob Jansen. To reach our show today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. Or send us an email at jacobjansen at itookthehighroad.com. Now, back to the show. Hello and welcome back to I Took the High Road. I am your host, Jacob Jansen, and today's show is Inpatient Treatment Facilities, and we are joined with Betsy Farber-Smith, who is the Executive Director of Treatment Services at the Betty Ford Center. So uh, before we went to our commercial break, we were kind of talking about what cognitive behavioral therapy uh, was. And one of the other things that stands out uh, in my mind when I went to treatment is, is something called psychotherapy. And in psychotherapy, what they tried to do, uh, you know, is, is I volunteered for this, by the way, is they, they put me in the middle of the circle, about around 40 people, and uh, we role played and we had each one of those uh, people talk uh, uh, as a role of somebody in my life, but as a very negative role. And the point of it was to try and break my ego. Uh, one of the things that I certainly needed to work on, um, I had a huge ego going into a treatment facility. Um, and psychotherapy was one of the things that, that really helped me understand how that ego was was damaging to my recovery. So, uh, Betsy, as I bring you back in here, can you maybe touch on a, a little bit more about what psychotherapy is and why treatment facilities use it? Yeah, psychotherapy is very powerful. We do, we also do what you're talking about, the chair in the middle of the circle. We also do something uh, referred to as the empty chair where you would sit in the middle of the circle facing an empty chair and, and address some some key person in your life that you needed to say something to, for example, that would address an issue in your past history. You know, as we said before the break, that oftentimes we start using and drinking, self-medicating a psychological issue, something that's happened in our lives uh, early on that affects us in our adulthood as we grow and mature. And, you know, you talk about your ego. That's a very common um, issue that we address here for people who come into treatment, and I think we develop our ego during the course of our using as a part of our denial. No, so absolutely. Yeah. That needs to be addressed in, in the psychotherapy. Uh, again, these are the small group sessions that we do, usually five to eight patients with a therapist or two, where we address the trauma, we address the ego, the depression, the anxiety, um, and it's Psychotherapy is incredibly powerful. I know I did it when I was in treatment as well, and it really helps to get to the meat of the matter. And what we do here is we address what's going on in the moment. It's called process-focused therapy. So not only are you interacting with someone in an empty chair or someone who's playing a role, but you're talking about how it feels in the moment, as well as getting feedback from people who are sitting around the outside of the circle observing what you're doing and what you're going through. And again, yeah, I, of course, this is all facilitated by the therapist. Absolutely. You know, I, I remember when I volunteered for psychotherapy, my ego was so big that I said, you can't crack me. 
you know, give it your best shot and, you know, see if uh, you can make a dent in me. And I didn't visibly show it, I don't think, that day. But, you know, those thoughts and that process of what happened actually stuck with me, you know, for a few days after. And I slowly started to realize how beneficial it was because it wasn't just about breaking you, but it was about helping you understand how this was negatively impacting you but then also how could they build you back up after this and, and to, a, to a better point in your life um, that's it, a good I, point I think psychotherapy is about breaking down and then building back up that's really a good point sure you know are there any less traditional methods of, of treatment that the Betty Ford Center utilizes you know I, I know you mentioned one other I forget the name of it what you mentioned but I mentioned acupuncture okay. and biofeedback. A lot of, there's a lot of focus on wellness now. Um, oh, my gosh, we do all kinds of, of alternative therapies here. Again, it's very individualized. Um, and these, there's a lot of leeway in these, in these process groups depending upon what is the issue at hand in, you know, in the now, in the moment, in these processes. Uh, focused groups. Um, I, when I was a counselor here, I would do groups where I would, you know, blindfold people and and I would lead them around, and we would talk about trust and um, what it felt like to be blindfolded and have to trust someone to lead us. You know, taking turns being the leader and the and the blindfolded person. Just for an example, um, we do a thing where we pile chairs in the middle of the room as we all say what we're bringing to the to the process, and then we remove the chairs as we say what we're going to not do any longer kind of thing. And I think that there's, you know, and they do the same thing in the family program and the children's program, these process-focused groups where we get our feelings out and take a look at them. Sure. You know, I remember you, you talked about being blindfolded, and I remember them doing that at uh, the facility that I went to also. Uh, but it revolved around the action that you used most. So for some people, they were blindfolded if it was a trust issue. For me, um, I got my mouth covered because I like to talk if uh, my <laughs> listeners have a guest. So uh, for me, I couldn't talk for 24 hours, but it really helped me uh, try something new. And you know, and that seems to be what uh, recovery is, is really about. So Betsy, what would surprise our listeners or what would they really not expect about the Betty Ford Center or, or any treatment facility that's out there? Well, there is such a mystery about it, isn't there, Jake? There, yeah. You know, as far as I mentioned earlier with the Betty Ford Center, we're not for the people of means and prominence only. I think that would surprise people. I think we have our patients, um, you know, expect to see well-known people here. And, you know, it's... Addiction is an equal opportunity employer, and we have people from all walks of life here. I think what people would be surprised about treatment is how normal it is. You know, it's getting back to normal life. It's not about more progression of the disease. It's about regression and back to back to what's normal. And I think the laughter would surprise people. I think the camaraderie, I think the wellness, the focus on health and wellness, I think the, the psychological and the psychiatric issues that are able to be addressed in treatment. It's, you know, it's total immersion in the self. As we say, recovery is a very selfish program. And it's all about, you know, I was, I was so grateful to come into treatment and be able to focus on myself. You know, I'd been trying yeah. to be 
you know, such a high-functioning alcoholic, I was all things to all people and really had neglected myself. And it's an opportunity to come and work on yourself and become that person that you want to be. No, absolutely. It's a, it's a selfish disease, and you have to take that selfishness and really focus it back into your own recovery. You know, and you mentioned uh, the the Betty Ford Center as a place. You know, that's not just for prominence or wealth. And you know, certainly, I think most people uh, think that it's for celebrities. But you know, when I tell families uh, that are on the fence about going to an inpatient facility, I can look them straight in the eyes and honestly say that a treatment facility will be a lot cheaper than a incarceration, uh, you know, with lawyers and fines and fees or a funeral. Uh, you know, it's so a, a lot of times doing this, uh, you know, can, can stem off a lot of future, you know, negatives and, and expenses. Well, I think another people would be, thing people would be surprised to hear is that as far as the cost of treatment, which you just referred to, we're very competitively priced. We post our, our, our prices on our website. Uh, and also, as I mentioned, I worked in the foundation for eight years um, raising money for scholarships. We give away a lot of money every year in scholarships. People are asked to bring a certain amount with them when they come because we feel that you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch, and you need to be invested in your own recovery. But we have scholarships available, and you know, one of Mrs. Ford's tenets was that no one would be, um, you know, if you come to treatment, if you're admitted to treatment, and you run out of funds in the middle of your treatment, you know, we'll find a way to keep you here to to complete your treatment. That's just fantastic. You know, since I started doing the show, um, you know, and as I do interventions, the cost of treatment always comes into play. And it seems like uh, certainly for an addicted individual looking for help, you know, they're usually not financially set, sometimes don't have insurance. It becomes a huge barrier for them to get into, but also for family members to say, you know, I don't know if we can put this amount up. Um, and that's one of the biggest things that I'm seeing right now is, you know, the 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 scholarships, the payments, the getting people into treatment facilities that want to be there. So, uh, you know, if if there are any people out there that would like to donate money to get more people into treatment programs, you can certainly email me at Jacob Jansen at I Took the High Road. Um, you know, and let's see if we can uh, get some funds together to help some of these individuals who want help and don't have the funds or insurance to get that. So and we can we can work with you on that as well, Jake. You know, a lot of people don't realize that we are nonprofit. Um, the Betty Ford Center, and so we're always interested in um, helping people access treatment as well. You bet. That's fantastic, and I will certainly uh, definitely keep in contact with you, and we'll be talking soon about that. Um, so, you, you know, aftercare was such an important part of, of my recovery, and now as a recovery coach, you know, I help other people in their aftercare and finding that better life. So, you know, for your facility and, and you personally, how important is aftercare, and how do you implement aftercare after a patient's stay at Betty Ford? Well, continuing care is, is, is the key. Really, inpatient treatment is the tip of the iceberg. It's just sort of a kickoff to recovery. What's most important about a patient's treatment is what happens after they leave. We do offer a continuum of care here, different levels of care, inpatient, um, 
residential day treatment, day treatment, outpatient, therapeutic aftercare groups. And, you know, addiction is a lifelong disease, so recovery has to be a lifelong effort as well. Every single patient who comes to the center gets an individualized continuing care plan in their home area. So they go home with an appointment made with a therapist, if that's the recommendation. They go home with an alumni contact from a Betty Ford Center alum who will greet them, take them to a meeting, get them hooked up with the recovery community in their home area. Um, if uh, you know group counseling is, is warranted, that's recommended, an appointment is set up. So everybody goes home with a continuing care plan with um, three or four different things on it to do to continue their their recovery. We make it very clear that treatment is only the beginning. No, absolutely. When I tell people, you know, uh, treatment is, is, you know, facilities are the third step in my process to getting clean, the first being the intervention, the second being the detoxification, the third being treatment. Uh, and then that fourth piece that so many people miss um, is making a better life for yourself in, in your recovery. And how do you really do that? Because when you get out of an inpatient treatment facility after 30, 60, 90 days, whatever it is, more often than not, the problem from the drug use are still there, uh, but now you don't have your coping mechanism, that opiate or drugs or alcohol that you use to cope with some of those things uh, in the past. So uh, for a lot of individuals, life even gets more difficult because all the stressors and problems are there, but they don't have that out anymore. Uh, So recovery is about helping people figure out how to reduce that stress and how to help them find purpose. That's certainly what I do as a recovery coach. Oh, absolutely. You know, there's an expression in treatment when after you leave, there's only one thing you have to change, and that's everything. And we need to learn how to do that as as we go home and as we go about our daily lives, because you're right, nothing at home changes. Sure. We We need to change. How do you see inpatient treatment changing in the future, if any? Well, I think that um, given the Affordable Care Act, I think that out, the outpatient level of care is going to be uh, more, more prevalent. We're actually opening an, an outpatient center in West Los Angeles uh, in January. We have uh, plans to open one in uh, other ones in Southern California, possibly Texas. I think we're going to see more people accessing the outpatient level of care, which is a good thing because I think that's you know, there's less of a stigma attached. People don't have to disappear for 30 days. They can maintain their lives, work around their schedules, continue with their jobs. Um, I think that's going to be the biggest change is, is the shift. Um, still, people will need inpatient care to be sure, but I think that outpatient is going to become more prevalent. And, and I got about 30 seconds left here for you. So do you have any final message for our listeners, Betsy? Well, just if there's anyone out there who needs help, who is wondering if they have a problem, if you're a parent and you're concerned about your child, I know when I was a parent, when my children were younger, I was the last to know when something was going on in their lives and I needed to listen to my gut. If I suspected that something was going on, I needed to look into it. And there's no harm in making that phone call. I'd also like to encourage people to visit our website. I was on there last night. There are videos from our staff. Um, it tells all about our different levels of care and treatment, and it's um, www.bettyfordcenter.org. 
And um, it tells all about treatment and it demystifies our prices are on there. And as I said, there are videos by physicians and former patients and staff members. And I just don't hesitate. This is a chronic fatal disease and it's not something to be taken lightly. Okay, thank you. Betsy Farber-Smith, Executive Director of Treatment Facilities or Services from the Betsy Ford Center. Thank you for being on our show. Thanks a lot, Jake. So that's all the time uh, we have today. Please join us next week as we talk with Melissa Colleen, author of the book Recovery Coaching, about recovery coaching. Have a great week and enjoy life. Thank you for listening to I Took the High Road. Please join Jacob Jansen for another encouraging hour next Friday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll see you next week.